Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, talking to you from still pretty sunny Austin, Texas. I am here with uh, with only Robin Beret. Hi, Robin. Oh, hey, how's it going? Um, Brian, uh, once again, has some responsibilities. Poor Ryan is under the weather. And so it's just me and Robin this morning. And we are going to talk about um, decision-making and uh, specifically decision-making in children and the sort of question of the meaningfulness of children's decision-making. Uh, and this comes from some of Robin's research in bioethics. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but here, while we're recording, it's just a couple days after American Thanksgiving. And if you're an American thinking, why are you specifying American Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is as American as apple pie and baseball. Uh, the thing about Canadians is they have a Thanksgiving too. And oh, we sure, we sure do. Yeah. Um, it's on like it's a totally so, different day. It's on a totally different day. I mean, don't worry. It's, pro- it's like, I mean, there weren't as many pilgrims involved, but it was still like kind of a, maybe like a dubious affair when looked upon from the light of later history. Um, but I don't know but, if you saw, well, you're not on, you're no Twitter Robin. So, right. um, you didn't see, but there was a, a thread that was going around, uh, or like a, like a meme that was ruined Thanksgiving in four words. And it was all things like, yeah, you know, sorry, I burned the, I burned the turkey or whatever. That's too many words, but you get the point. Uh, and because I'm mean, my four words were here, hold these blankets. Oh, yeah. Canada did that too, guys. So. Yeah, because the, the mythos around Thanksgiving <laughs> is uh, real dark. It's mess. Yeah. So anyways, we have our own, but we get, we like, you know how November is so busy and like you just have all the stuff to do and everyone's got a cold and whatnot. And then like, then you all have to pile on the planes and see your families. Well, we get it over with in early October. Eminently practical as is the Canadian. Super practical. uh, So like, I think, I think this year it was October 7th. It's on a Monday as well. So that, you know. Which I could see how you guys would object because you only get a three day long weekend then, right? You get like Friday, Saturday, like, you know, Saturday, but as, Sunday. As someone Monday. who teaches university classes, having like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off seems awesome. Except that if you teach classes on Monday and Tuesday, which inevitably you do, almost all of your students are either gone bodily or totally gone mentally. Yeah. Uh, October 8th. It was on October 8th. The other nice thing is like most people do their Thanksgiving dinner on the Monday, but some people do it on the Sunday instead. And then you always have like you have Saturday and maybe Sunday as a prep day for your giant instead of like rolling straight from work into like all your relatives are coming over at 2 p.m. on um, Thursday to just like chow down and you I don't know what just stay that's, up on, like, that's how Canadian you are Robin you had to think about what day American Thanksgiving was on you had to pause and consider wait what day do those weirdos to the south of me do their Thanksgiving on right Thursday that's Thursday yeah oh I, <laughs> I just I mean it's just in the middle of the week you know no it's a mess um well so but part of what we wanted to talk about was uh how just as a matter of frivolity, how we navigate the transition from like autumn holidays and quasi holidays like Halloween into Advent and Christmas. Um, Cause there's a, there's a, there's a, a grumpy liturgical crowd out there that will remind you that Christmas, the Christmas season starts when Robin? 
December 25th. Correct, Amundo. Uh, and so there's a lot of like general grumbling about like, look at all this green and red. What's it doing out there on that tree? Why is that tree out? It's November 29th or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious, Robin, like in in your house, have you capitulated to the secularization of Christmas? Um, or have you lost the war on Christmas in your house? (sighs) Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if Christ even was ever in Christmas in our house. It's just a bad scene. It's just a train wreck. There's just but like, like when do you when do you put up a tree? Okay, so actually, um, this is this already came up at dinner yesterday because for those of you, you know, for our faithful listener out there, um, who doesn't know this, my husband and I live with another family, um, and uh, and they and their three children, and the uh, my roommate Paige is American. She's from Minnesota. And so uh, she has strong cultural feelings about when Christmas starts, which sometimes she can't even keep the Christmas music off until like after American Thanksgiving. Um, (laughs) But at least she like keeps it to herself and only plays it when none of the rest of us are home. So she wants to put like the tree up like the first Sunday of December of Advent if not before, and have the house like completely decorated. Uh, I am now not that's, a. That's pretty uh, restrained, actually, because there are a lot of households in which the tree goes up like the Friday right after Thanksgiving. Like are you that's serious? what you do. Like you eat leftovers and you put the tree up and you decorate the house for Christmas. No, 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 no. Because no. you got Advent. The thing about Advent is you kind of got to like work your way. Gra- now, in my house growing up, we were never one of those families that like you don't do like any Christmas decorating until um, uh, like Christmas Eve. And then like, you know, like that thing where like for kids after you go to bed, the mom like decorates the entire house. <laughs> um, so then they wake up have the next morning. Have a very morning. gendered Christmas. Yeah, have a very gendered Christmas. The, okay, the funny thing is that particular like weird liturgical hangup features in just a few of the... Uh, the uh, Hallmark Christmas movies. Oh yeah, it does. In your ex- in your exhaustive survey. In my exhaustive survey, um, there's at least one occasion, which I thought was really quite interesting because I would say like that's now a cultural anomaly. The idea that like you put your Christmas like you decorate yeah. basically Christmas Eve and then you go into the Christmas season with your decorations. So, but pri- my interest, my question here is like, so then prior to that, are you just sticking with like? gourds and uh fallen leaves like what's the what's the decorative motif well the decorative motif is advent so like put out like like your advent wreath right and maybe a few other like adventy type items in the interim and then i generally favor like advent calendar is a strong option Advent calendar is a very strong option. Yeah, uh, we had a beer one last year. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked at that. Uh, uh, I found a beautiful like ger- like like German one, like with the all the drawings, and you open the door, and every day it's got yeah. like a Bible verse for the girls. Last year, I I favor kind of a gradual. Like I usually put my tree up kind of like third Sunday of Advent okay. type thing, mostly as a compromise. I think like. In future, um, I'd like to move more and more to like setting up your tree on uh, Christmas Eve and stuff. The thing is, so here's the thing. 
it's not so much about the timing. It's what, what annoys me about like the putting your tree up Friday after Thanksgiving is it's a total failure of understanding like anticipation and feasting. I mean, it's like, yes. You haven't even wiped the crumbs of your Thanksgiving dinner off of your shirt yet. And you have to line up to like buy a ton of shit. And then you decorate for Christmas. And then the Christmas, like, um, and then like all of Advent, there's, there's this like weird anticipation, but it's all, but it's also not anticipation because it's already Christmas. And then December 26th, the tree goes like back in the box or burnt in the backyard. And like, it's like, what is the next thing? Like, it's like, you're never, it's like culturally, it's like a cultural manifestation of never being satisfied. So you can't sit with like the 12 feast days of Christmas. It's just like all like pre anticipation. And then before you digested like whatever feast meal it is, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, it's just like, already on to the next thing. And if you want to understand the psychodynamics of that, go back and listen to episode 12, where Ryan interviews Paul Axton about Lacan and psychoanalysis, because <laughs> that's exactly what Lacan is talking about, traversing the fantasy and all this stuff. Um, <laughs> here's a liturgical question. Does the Advent wreath belong uh, in church? Like, it, should it be, should lighting the Advent candles be part of the liturgical, like, Advent celebration? Uh, I'm I'm a yes on this one. I am too. Because, uh, I mean, I know it's like technically like, like a, a devote, like a, like a quote unquote private devotion, but I just don't see any problem with it. Being- no. And I mean, being Anglican, like a lot of our, we just do a lot of our devotions corporately, right? Like yeah. we do like, I mean, we basically invented the corporal uh, um, confession, right? So. All right. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm How kind about, of with you on that one. Yeah. What about you? What's your like? Well, we're, Christmas? we're a divided. We're a divided house. Uh, um, we'll see if, how long we stand. Still standing for the moment. Um, so I have, as I sort of moved, as I moved from being uh, purely, almost purely intellectually Catholic to to being more sort of um, Catholic in a more integrated way. I I took up. Uh, our friend, our friend Timothy's uh, war on Christmas, uh, which is to say that the war on Christmas before Christmas. And so um, my move has been to uh, admit of the Christmas tree during Advent. Because if I didn't, the tree would still go up. I would just be sleeping on the couch next to it. Um, <laughs> so, so the tree goes up. And I think this year, I haven't, I haven't pushed it that hard in the past, but I think this year we're going uh, like purple tinsel and I might get a special set of like purple uh, bulb ornaments that Ooh. then we can redecorate the tree on like Christmas Eve. I like it because um, then you get like the smell of the tree the whole time. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get a plastic one because my dad worked in TV news and did like had to do two stories every year about houses that burned down because of dry trees in their living room. Um, so that's no fun, but we'll spray an air freshener right next to it. It'll be great. Um, it'll smell like pine. It'll be great. Um, but yeah, we did that. We did. We, I, I got an advent wreath a couple years ago. Uh, I got really, these really pretty rolled beeswax advent candles. Mm. Um, it turns out if you try and buy advent, a lot of advent stuff, the shades of purple that are available are awful. I mean, just yep. saccharine, gross. Ugh. But you, you got... You, 
You just gotta you gotta skip over everything you can find in North America and go straight to the Germans. Oh, is that right? I have to have it imported from Germany. Yeah, which luckily Amazon will just like take care of for you now. Um, That's true. But because like, and they make these beautiful like wooden Advent like um, they're not wreaths, but they're kind of carved stands. And anyways, yeah, they've really got a lock on like that side of. I'm literally writing a note to myself that says German Advent swag. Yeah, that's, that's where I got mine. That's the click of my pen, finishing my note. Dumb. And I also think like there's just so many um, uh, great Advent carols that you miss if you just skip straight to the Christmas ones, right? I mean, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is easily from, I think it's the most metal of the like advent carols um like it's just it's super dark and i'm mm-hmm. real into it um mm-hmm. what's what are some other favorites uh come thou redeemer of the earth i don't think i know that one drop down ye heavens from above oh, that one i know that one's good um the cherry tree carol well, uh, no not familiar uh king jesus has a garden i if these are the obscure like british Holy smokes, like yeah yeah on Jordan's Bank, the Baptist cry. Well, that one's, yeah, that one I've actually heard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I grew up with, I had some family friends growing up uh, who, um, they're kind of interesting people in that I think they grew up uh, sort of, sort of uh, Anglo-Catholic-ish uh, in Canada, and they came to the U.S. as missionaries, but by then they had become sort of 1970s evangelicals. Okay. Um, but they still had a kind of Anglo-Catholic baptismal character. Um, so some of the stuff I didn't realize had seeped into me until I, until I bumped into Anglo-Catholics later in my life. And I was like, I, some of this, I've, I, I know some of this. I've heard this before. Um, anyway, that's a, a weird biographical thing for my life. Um, all right. Have we covered this territory? Is there anything else we want to hit? When, when, I mean, when do we take also, the tree down? That's another question. Oh, well, hold on. There's also box sleepers wake, which is BWV. I know um, all of those words. Um, anyways, I'm just saying there's a great, if you pick up King's Advent and Procession and Carol's album, there's like so many great Advent hymns and readings, of course. Um, I'm making another note. Do, do the Catholics do the um, Procession and Carol's? Is that a You know, uh, a service well, have, you we'd do? have to get Jacob back on the show to talk yeah. about that because I... Um, I'm really exhausting my liturgical knowledge in this conversation right now. It's a it's an extremely like Anglican thing, as far as I know. Um, but it could. Uh, well, and in this, but in the states, you know, you never know what what's seeped back in. What's seeped back in? Yeah. Um, uh, oh, take the tree down. Um, Epiphany. Yeah, that that seems like the the obvious thing. Um, but there is at some point where like if you're buying a lot a live a live tree that you've killed um and you've had <laughs> you've had it up since let's say the beginning of advent yeah you're, you're really getting into fire hazard territory I, obviously it, i have a preoccupation but which is also why then like you put your christmas tree up like third or fourth sunday of advent no that's a good call that's a good and then call. you have it for the 12 days of christmas on which, unfortunately, I've never received any partridges. <laughs> Nor has anyone Neil. gifted me a bunch of leaping lords. Um, yeah, how do you get the... Well, anyway. I don't, 
I mean, I, I can imagine some ways you could get lords to leap, but how to like corral enough of them together and then make them like, make a gift of them. Yeah. Although every, every year, someone, some big newspaper releases a statement on how much it would cost to gift someone <laughs> Adjusted all of the for items. Inflation. Uh, but I'm not, I think, I think you're just talking about renting like leaping Lords and stuff. I was going to say I, how many aerial gentry, like, are we, are we paying for here? I don't even also, remember. Yeah. It's also just like now that like slaves are just like, really like we recognize like the deep immorality of it. Gifting human beings to other people has taken on a bit of a. Well, and, and if we're, if we're, if we're making slaves of Lords, like that's, we're upending the entire political economy oh i never wow i mean it's just like wow what a marxist song i never even knew i guess so that uh yeah cast cast down the mighty um <laughs> the magnificat yeah. as as interpreted through the 12 days of that's right i just made a semi-oblique uh marian reference because i'm catholic now everybody and i caught it and i'm not even catholic yeah well you know actually yeah, I'm not All right. Roman. Now All right, we should talk about the actual subject. Eh? I know if we've totally gone off the rails. You're really good at frivolity. Oh, thanks. Ryan and I could barely muster like seven minutes of it. But... <laughs> All right, uh, great. Well, when, when you need a nanity, I'm, I'm the team member for the job. You know, if you have a talent. All right, so um, at Lonergan on the Edge, that seems like a million years ago now, mm-hmm. uh, Robin gave a paper and um, she was going to, share with us a little bit sort of what the thesis of that was and the, the sort of problematic that it touches on. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw to you, Robin. Sounds good. So um, again, for our faithful listener to who may or may not know, although I dabble in theology and quite enjoy it and have, you know, kind of take theology as, as the foundation for the kind of ethics and bioethics I do, because at some point you just got to choose like, you know, some sort of uh, like, anthropology and and philosophy that you're going by um uh but my main area of focus um and what i really do in my um graduate research is in bioethics so and specifically i deal with bioethical questions involving children and even more specifically i um write about dying children um and kind of the issues that face them so one of the things I noticed as I was reading through base, you know, a whole bunch of uh, mostly bioethical literature on children is it kept coming up with the same phrase over and over again, which is that um, children can't be involved in decision making or children can't make decision or they have no rights to participate in decision making because they can't make meaningful decisions. And this word meaningful kept coming up over and over again, but really without definition. Um, and so, as usual, when, with any word that people use all the time, uh, reality is a big one, uh, embodied, vulnerable, meaning. If they keep using it over and over again and they don't define it, um, that's like, for me, that's like a red flag, right? Um, what do you do with this? And, and, and what exactly... Are they, you know, what exactly do they mean by meaningful? Um, and what's its opposite? So is the opposite arbitrary decisions, meaningless decisions, insubstantial decisions? So 
um, uh, basically, I mean, this ends up forming part of my dissertation on a, a chapter about decision-making in medicine for children. Um, but I really got thinking about, well, if, if the reason we bar children from participating in medical um, decision-making is their ability or lack of ability to make meaningful decisions, well, what do we mean by this? Um, and so uh, I started thinking about that and I ended up writing an entire paper on it. Um, uh, yeah, where should I start? Well, the first question, of course, is why does this phrase meaningful decision keep coming up? And the reason is, of course, comes back to Childress and Beecham, uh, which is spelt Beauchamp, by the way, like B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P, if anyone like is just dying to check them out after this. Childress and Beecham wrote a book back in the 60s or 70s, basically like the four principles of bioethics. And bioethics is basically like skirted along on these principles ever since then, as if they're just going to work. Um, and they define basically, and the re, uh, they define autonomy as self-rule, autonomy being one of their principles and arguably their most important principle, uh, self-rule that is free from both controlling interference by others and from limitations such as inadequate understanding that prevent meaningful choice. So meaningful choice basically um, is central to their definition of autonomy. But they never actually define meaningful choice in their chapter. As a matter of fact, a little bit later in that section, they say even our definition of autonomy is a little bit too kind of highfalutin. And, uh, and we're just going to kind of stick with like essentially a measurement of rational capacity. Um, Regardless of that, basically, um, this still comes up all the time. Meaningful, meaningful, meaningful. So even though they don't explicitly uh, define it, they do basically later characterize this, this ability to choose as, um, as being able to act freely in accordance with a self-chosen plan. Um, they also mention kind of the abilities to choose values and preferences and act according to them. Um, in other uh, bioethical literature that specifically makes reference to meaningful decisions, like for why children can't participate, um, some of them describe it as rational capacity or capacity for discernment, or um, Jeremick says, you know, most preschool age children younger than five or six do not possess a sufficient level of comprehension to meaningfully participate in decision making. Um, so, you know, here they've clearly linked meaningful decision-making with some sort of rational capacity. Um, others link it more with, like, values, wishes, preferences, or feelings. And so they keep saying, well, like, young children have no values or wishes or preferences or feelings. Which, if you ever lived with a toddler, is a very strange thing. <laughs> um, they yeah, have living, a lot. Living with two of them, I, uh, let, me, let me just say, so many preferences. Yeah? So do, they have, do they have some wishes? Hey, hey, John, do they have feelings? This, mor this morning, Oscar was shouting at me. I don't just want a little bit of goldfish. I want a lot of goldfish. No, not in the small green bowl, in the big bowl, in the big white bowl. Honey, I think the big white bowls are dirty. No, they're not dirty. <laughs> 
Anyway, wishes, desires. And like an irrational apprehension of the size of the two bowls. Yep. And how filling one of them is actually going to result in way more goldfish in his possession than filling the other. Correct. Um, yeah. Uh, others like McCabe, when she talks about um, children and meaningful decisions, she talks about basically the ability to basically factor in purely subjective factors and values. Um, so basically, you know, that, so it's either basically meaningful decision means something about having substan- like enough rational ability to make a decision although it's not clear exactly how much is enough. And also then basically to have some sort of system of values and preferences that you can decide on. And other times, sometimes the authors talk about it as if it's just basically making a reasonable choice or the choice that everyone else would make in the topic in or you know, given that situation. Which, um, of course, begs the question like, well, then why do we need an ethicist? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a really good one. So, um, so this gets, it gets complicated for a number of reasons. So people keep using this category of meaningful decisions, but not in a way that's clearly defined and often the, or in ways where, um, as I find even more interesting, they're excluding children for things like having no values, having no preferences, having no wishes, um, not making a choice that actually children are capable of doing. Maybe not, you know, and I'm not saying here that children are capable of like deciding whether or not they should have a kidney removed, but they are capable of kind of values and preferences. And so exactly like how, how much preferences or what about those preferences is kind of the threshold for whether or not you get to participate in. So that the, right. So that sort of the idea is that there's a, it seems to that there's a, um, a difference in kind being posited rather than what seems more plausible, which is that there's a difference in degree. Yeah. Um, I mean, for Childers and Beecham, because they rely entirely on a, a capacity basis, it kind of is a bit of a difference. I mean, it's theoretically a difference in degree. I think how it's playing out in the literature involving children is it's a difference in kind. Well, that's what I mean, right? Is yeah. That, is that, it, that yeah. part of the problem here seems to be that um, there's that what's that it's it's being sort of plainly treated as though it's these are sort of obviously differences in kind. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and when you sort of when you get a little more concrete about it, the, the plausibility of that distinction gets a little tenuous. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I kind of want to talk about. Although I do want to also say. One of the other interesting things to observe is that so one of the objections is that children don't have like a set of values that they they choose according to or whatever. The childers in Beecham and bioethics in generally have um, has steered away from any sort of substantive definitions of autonomy, so that like it you know you have to choose goods or whatever. And so um, it's just it really actually comes down to rational capacity. And so it's really interesting because as an adult, I could make a choice in my medical care that actually is a total departure from all of my previous values. And that's essentially my right. My autonomous right is that, um, you know, because it's my choice, it's therefore properly validly mine. 
Um, so we allow a degree of essentially arbitrary choice in adults, but in children, we have like one of the big objections is, well, they don't have a set like personality with values and, and all these things that they, um, so let's uh, jump, let's jump then into how would we kind of, how would we fill this lacuna or how would we, uh, how, how, what sort of direction do you want to go in, in terms of dressing this, um, sort of underdeveloped notion of meaningful decision-making? Well, the, the place that, that, that I've chosen to go, and I think that, that needs to go first, is I went in the direction of meaning. Because this word meaningful keeps coming up over and over um, as essentially the criteria, um, that seemed to me to be the place to really focus inquiry. So one of the first places I looked is kind of um, at like theological ethics, one particular project in theological ethics of children, which talks a lot about meaning, which was a little bit helpful, except that this person also doesn't give any sort of definition of meaning. Um, And his entire ethical theory um, is totally unconnected with decision-making, which is a thing like, in the post McIntyre ethics age that basically everyone's like, we focused entirely on choice and decision. Like we in ethics, we focused entirely on choice and it got us nowhere. We need to focus on a lot of the things that, eight, that the ancients focus on, right? Like we need to focus on worldview and ways of life and character and, and all that sort of stuff. And narrative narrative's a big one. The problem with that is um, in ethics, you still sometimes have to make choices. Um, so you need a way to tie in that that broader scope, that discussion of whatever it happens to be, meaning, character, whatever, back into the decisions. So, um, so where I kind of first went um, didn't end up really working, uh, and uh, I um, so I ended up going to Lonergan because you know it's been kind of useful to me in the past and. There's uh, nothing I love more than the uh, grudging recognition of Lonergan's helpfulness in theoretical matters. Right, I know. Well, it actually makes me m- way more happy than just like unfettered enthusiasm. <laughs> just like, well, <laughs> like, I needed that's I right. needed someone who could think about the theory. Yeah. Um, because in because in ethics, like again, also ethics suffers from a real problem of like a, a total focus on the practical, which. In this manner, it also fails in the practical because, like, children. So we we were like, oh, children can't participate in decisions. They they have nothing meaningful to contribute. But part of the reason people think that is that um, no one actually talks to them. So like, the literature's bad on this. Like, sixty one percent. So like a two thousand seven study that looked at kids between the ages of six and eleven, where they definitely have like preferences, wishes, language ability. Sixty one percent of them were not even given a chance to participate in decision making. Um, another study in the same year uh, found sixty five percent of children totally uninvolved. Many of them not even informed. Um, so. I think, I mean, I think these data, and there's a lot more of them, basically make the general assumption in pediatric ethics that children can't meaningfully participate kind of extra bad because it's like, well, um, you know, it's like if you buy a new tool, right? And like, you know, like you get an electric mixer and you're like, I've always used a bowl and a spoon. There's no way this will be useful to me. Well, 
it's not until you actually use it that you can determine that. I don't want to suggest an instrumentalizing of children here, but kind of the same thing. If you don't talk to children, you have no idea what they're capable of. Um, or to, to use a different metaphor, if you, if you make a map without having done any surveying, when yeah. you then try to go navigate the terrain, it's not that so practical. It's not, it's no. Not that no, you're going to be up, you're going to be up the creek without a paddle. And you, you don't even know which creek. Anyway, so uh, that's just a, that's just a side note. But like, if you don't talk to children, how do you know whether or not they have preferences and feelings and whatever, right? Right. But that's, that's kind of a practical issue. What I really wanted to do is kind of zero in on more of the, um, the theoretical issues here and talk about meaning and talk about, um, really wanted to argue that essentially children's or what I kind of end up arguing and the position I've come to take in is that for the, you know, roughly speaking, children's ability to participate or not, children's intellectual kind of activity isn't a difference in kind, the way that's postulated. It's a difference in degree. Um, and not only is it a difference in degree, but children have certain um, gifts that are essentially lost over like kind of intellectual gifts that are kind of lost over time mm. that you know and adults have many other intellectual gifts right um but children actually bring something to, to the table that's you know a little bit um kierkegaard in yeah. kierkegaard in i think it's in the sickness and the death but it, it might be in the concept of anxiety makes this point that's always stuck with me um that uh, adolescents are very clear about the fact it must be in the sickness under death because he's using the category of despair. Uh, but he says, you know, adolescents are really clear about the fact that they're in despair. Uh, and as they become adults, they lose this clarity. They sort of lose touch with that. They're in despair. Um, mm -hmm. and for, and for Kierkegaard, like you are closer to being relieved of your despair. If you know you're in despair than if you're oblivious to it. Um, right. there's something about being a teenager. He saw, um, that gives you a kind of special access to that, that part of being of, of both being self and not being a self, not yet being right. a self. Um, yeah. But it seems that there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of clue there that, that childhood modes of cognition and affectivity um, aren't merely deficient adult cognition and adult affectivity. Right. Um, that, that though there are differences in degree and in kind, those, um, those have a quality all their own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so Gareth Matthews, um, who writes in Philosophy of Children, um, kind of says, you know, you look at like two-year-olds, three-year-olds, and they all the time, why? What are, you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Over and over and over. And um, Juliet, who we live with, is just everything I like. She comes into my room. What are you doing? Right. And now she's beginning to kind of like characterize, like, she'll come in. Are you watching a show? Are you going pee? Like, are you taking your clothes off? Yes, I am. <laughs> Hopefully not. Why all right. are you taking your clothes off? Why are you going pee? What, like, and um, so everything right now is this constant question. And, and Gareth Matthews, like, 
you see kids of a certain age, they ask and they ask and they ask. And then by the time when they reach school, they just stop asking. He's like, why do they stop asking? He's like, well, it's not because um, they've lost the desire to know. It's because we've killed it in them. Is basically what he says, and I mean, and I mean, for Lonergan, even the paradigm of of that that just deep like thirst, desire to know, is the child, right? And so I think that um, children, especially young children, have this this drive to knowledge. Um, that well, I think Mark Mark Miller in his one of his his book on Lonergan kind of says like. Children kind of exemplify this drive for knowledge, and adults can keep it, you know, if they try. And I was like, "But can they? I mean, do I mean, or functionally, do they ever kind of keep that same?" So, so one of the things, the distinction that Lonergan makes is um, that the the desire to know in children is is manifest because it's it it's sort of um, it's it's driving in a way that's not inhibited by very much in the way of. Uh, structure or preconceived notions or what have you. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it's also totally disorganized, um, right? It falls along lines of of sort of inference to some extent, but it doesn't go very far. Um, sometimes they ask questions that you're like, "Boy, if I was really going to answer that, we'd have I'd have to like, go, I'd have to start way, way, way over here with things you're not interested in right now." Um, yeah. And so, and so the the sh- the difficult shift then. And Lonergan uses the language of wisdom, right? That the the shift is from the the um, indeterminately directed desire to know that just wants to know whatever happens to be in front of them, right? Daddy, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, to a directed and organized and methodical approach to 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 knowing. Now, but the danger, right, is that um, in creating a determinate structure that makes the drive of the desire to know directed. Um, and so sort of methodically capable of cumulative and progressive um, in- engagement on some topic. Well, those very determinations can turn into uh, obstacles, limits, choke points, aporia, bias. bias, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah. A, and that- a dialectic at work where, where there's kind of, apparent contraries um, of both the drive to get more, but also to direct it in a kind of determinate way. Um, and that actually can be fruitful so long as the dialectic doesn't get out of whack, which is, I think, what happens so much in school is uh, there's a lot of determining and not a lot of self-transcending. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, well, I mean, you were there and you, you've put it better than, than I did at the time, but that's basically where I ended up going. Like there's, Children have a certain gifting here in that drive for knowledge. They're like intense observation, all that sort of stuff. Um, But also a lack of kind of organizational structure or whatever. And adults have way more of that organizational structure. But often then a lack of the flexibility and creativity that you need, especially when you're put into new situations and crisis situations, which is what you find when you're talking about medical decision making for children. and um, I will say, though, that I think even still we often underestimate like how structured children's thought and understanding can be. So Myra Bluebon Langner did a very famous study in leukemia wards um, back in, it's a sociological study, back in the 80s. 
um, where it wasn't common practice to even inform children that they had a serious illness, um, let alone involve them. Like they didn't even get informed usually that they were ill or dying or whatever, let alone kind of consulted at, at all in their decision making. And she studies and even kids like four or five years old, very, very rapidly know way before their parents even who everyone is in the hospital. So like who's a hematologist, um, uh, who's a general, who, who takes blood. Um, not only that, they know the hierarchy. They know which, like the hierarchy in the hospital, like the yeah. heme team is above the regular doctors, which is above the nurses, which is above the techs. Wow. Um, they know, you know, um, and they all come to an understanding of the fact that they're ill. Uh, and then eventually they all come to the knowledge that they're dying, usually way before their parents do. Um, and, and often try to initiate conversation on the topic are shut down and basically um, uh, go to great lengths to basically protect their parents from facing this reality. It's quite fascinating. So I think um, uh, the children often, I think, are capable of more structure, I guess, in their thought than we give them credit for, especially when you're talking about like... Um, like past the toddler age, like especially when you're talking about like four or five, you know, school age children, you know, up to, you know, um, um, actually the, and the blue bond Langner's study brings me to another one, which is that, uh, another kind of related point, which is, as you said, like there's a shared structure, but, um, kind of different giftings on each, on each side of it. Um, Which I think then brings us to a discussion of, well, how do you come to those structures and understandings? Um, and one thing that Bluon Langner found in her study is that the older children, not usually numerically older, but older who had been in the hospital longer, mm. would uh, inculcate the younger, the newer patients, oh, right? really? Yeah, it's... It's really fascinating and sort of conduct them in. Yeah. And the children used, created their own private spaces for open communication, primarily using the bathroom. Interesting. As a way of communicating because everywhere else had closed communication. It wouldn't, they weren't allowed to talk about their disease, about their, uh, their, their knowledge and all this sort of stuff. Is there any study of, um, the kinds of linguistic images that children use when they talk about this. So, so the reason I think of it is because like, gosh, I think it might be Eric Vogelin who, who talked about um, that, that even really profound ideas can be grasped, uh, you know, by children or, or anybody else in what he calls the compactness of the symbol. Mm -hmm. um, so that so even short of a kind of theoretical capacity to, to sort of articulate something with according to the rigors of, um, of a kind of, you know, you know, metaphysic or something like that, right? Um, still, profound understanding can be had in a way that's sort of internally undifferentiated through symbolic um, mythos, essentially, yeah. uh, is what he has in mind. So has anybody looked at the way children speak about their own illness or medical care? Uh, I mean, some people have looked at kind of metaphors and stuff, but I mean, the problem is that like children are just woefully understudied in the bioethical realm period. So like Blue Bond Langner's study 
which was done in the 70s, is still basically like the study on this issue, which wow. is a bit mind boggling that like no one's kind of worked. Like it was kind of interesting because I thought when I found her study, I'm like, if I quote this, am I just like terribly behind the times? But no, it gets quoted everywhere because it's the one. It's the one. No one's done. Yeah. But so when we think about, so actually, um, you want to like run us super quickly through uh, Lonergan's cognitional, like four levels of consciousness? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so Lonergan is um, in, a, in a way kind of adapting and concretizing Thomas's account of knowledge, Thomas Aquinas's. Um, and this is sort of the sort of thing if you bump into particular, you know, particularly uh, master students who've made a, a first uh, brush with Lonergan and you, you run into them at conferences giving papers, they'll rattle off the levels of consciousness. Um, but the, the idea basically is that uh, when you are awake, uh, when you're having, when you are sort of, anytime you're not in a dreamless sleep, you're having experience of some kind and your, your experience is mediated to you by your senses. Uh, and by memory, and by uh, the generation of, of what Lonergan calls free images, so basically imagination. Um, and, and Lonergan, uh, in the place of what Thomas, following Aristotle, would call the agent intellect, has the uh, pure unrestricted desire to know, which is this kind of uh, drive or thrust to make sense of one's experience by asking questions like, what is it? What happened? Et cetera, et cetera. What questions, he says, for understanding. Um, and if you, if you have this kind of question, it's usually experienced first as a, as a kind of tension. Uh, he calls it the tension of inquiry, a kind of unsettledness. You can kind of move the images around or look more closely or listen more closely or wait and observe. And eventually the images, the experiences will coalesce into a scheme that touches off that flash of understanding when you go oh i get it right that that pivot when you go from being puzzled to having some idea of what's going on but for lonergan that he calls that an, an act of insight or uh in latin right intelligere an act of, of intellect um and uh the the content of that is for the time being hypothetical it is an answer. It's, it's one idea of what may be going on or what that is or what have you, what I'm experiencing, whatever. Uh, and so there's a secondary question that borrows the content of the insight, the hypothetical content of the insight. And the, and the secondary questions he calls questions for reflection, where you ask, okay, this, this bright idea I have, this hypothesis I have about what it is or what's going on, is that correct? Is it so? Is it the case? And so you marshal and weigh the evidence, you check and make sure maybe you get some more data. And um, when you, uh, Lonergan uses the language, and maybe we can do an episode on this because it's interesting, he uses the language of a virtually unconditioned. When your hypothesis, uh, when you've determined that your hypothesis has conditions, that its conditions are fulfilled, and that in the evidence you find the fulfillment of those conditions, then you know that... Um, you know, if A, then B, but A, therefore B. And so you have a grasp of the virtually unconditioned. It's not absolutely unconditioned, right? It has conditions, but the conditions are fulfilled. And when you have a grasp of the virtually unconditioned, you know, and when you know, you know what is, what's the case, you know, being. Um, now that is sort of as far as Lonergan gets in insight. Um, 
do you want me to go on to talk about decision making in Lonergan in terms of the the fourth level of consciousness, or do we just want to leave it at the the three sort of properly cognitional ones? Uh, let's leave it there for now. Great. Um, and and so one of the things when you start noticing, um, and this ties, and now like I'm going to tie this into meaning. So for, um, because that was the original whole point of this question for me. Um, for Lonergan, meaning's not just like. It's not an abstract concept already out there in the world, right? Meaning only exists where you have subjects. Um, and it arises from data and images, ideas and concepts, the grasp of the unconditioned and judgment from the detached and disinterested desire to know, you know, from all conscious acts and all intended contents. That's where meaning arises. So, if children participate in this way of coming to know, essentially, then they participate in meaning. Which is, um, which is to say, if they perform those acts. If they perform those acts, then right. they are originators of meaning. Yeah. Um, and, 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 then that, and that's what I'm postulating is true, that children perform these acts. So children experience, right? They sense, they see, they, um, they hear, they smell, all of these things. Um, and then they come to understand, okay, well, you know, oh, that big green truck that comes outside of our house every Thursday morning that has the big lights, that's the gar, we call that, I mean, that one's the recycling truck. And the blue and the yellow one is the garbage truck, right? And the yellow bus is a school bus and the red and white bus is a city bus and all of that sort of stuff, right? And even, so, and even judgments of, uh, about being, right? So, um Hey, Daddy, is the recycling truck going to come today? Well, baby, what day is it? Oh, I don't know. What, Daddy, what day is it? Oh, it's, it's Monday. What day do the garbage trucks come? The garbage trucks come on Monday. Well, what does that mean then? Oh, it means the garbage truck is going to come today, right? He grasps the conditions that it, the garbage truck comes on a particular day. It's that day. The conditions are fulfilled. And so now he knows, oh, the garbage trucks come today. Right. Ex exactly. Yeah. Or it's Canadian Thanksgiving Monday and the garbage truck isn't coming because it's a special <laughs> Monday. Yeah. Um, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so, um, but what that means is if children participate in these conscious acts, then they are originators of meaning. So then the, well, so then as originators of meaning, okay, well, how do we then make that transition to understand? Um, actually, no, I want to back up a little bit because the other thing to recognize in this kind of cognitional structure is a lot of the insights that we have um, a lot of the, the knowing that it's a garbage truck, all that sort of stuff comes to us from other people, right? We don't start as a, uh, well, we don't even, we don't even start as a blank slate. And even if we did, we don't just come to know on our own. We receive it constantly from others. And so we receive these structures from our parents, from, from other children, from all that sort of stuff. Um, and as such, basically what I want to argue then, children meaningfully, um, contribute to a decision-making process. Now I want to stop and, and say that I don't mean this to advocate that you should just let children or adolescents just make medical decisions. That's been the real move in a lot of the kind of more liberatory bioethics stuff right well we just need to like put 
all these decisions into the hands of 13 year olds because they know, you know, whatever. I think what this structure gives us is a way of saying, well, look, no, children have a, are, have the, you know, a right to participate. Well, they have a gifting to participate. They bring meaning. Um, sometimes they bring new or creative meaning that we don't see because of our, like, kind of more structured patterns of thinking or our bias or whatever. So for, for Lonergan, right, another, another measure of when your, your judgment is um, reliable is when you've asked and answered all the relevant questions. Um, and so it seems to me that in, in this case, if you're excluding the questions and answers that children are asking and answering, you're, you're by definition excluding some of the relevant questions and answers from the deb- deliberative process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so you have like de facto an irrational decision-making process. Yeah, for which the stakes are quite high because you're making this decision. Again, you have to remember this decision's being made for the child. Yeah. Who's being excluded, right? So it's not just that you've made an insufficient judgment because you haven't asked all the relevant questions for yourself. You're actually doing it for somewhere else. And so, um, yeah, it's probably about as far as we have to get to go today. But that's where I really wanted to go was basically that that children and adults are both kind of originators of me in the same structure but without saying that like children just can do all these things because I think you have to recognize well yeah their ability to especially make those kind of unconditioned you know arrive at virtually unconditioned judgments um, and then act accordingly is going to be limited well and and also because um uh, and a little piece I left out when I rattled off the process, right? Pivoting between uh, an act of understanding where you answer a kind of what is it or what's going on question and the reflective questions are, is it correct? Is it so? There's a process of conceptualization um, where the, the sort of, let's say, immaterial content of the aha, of the insight, is then coupled again to very controlled images to, to sort of articulate just precisely what it was that was understood. So, you know, if you're sitting in a classroom or something and the lecture's going on and you've been puzzled for a while and then all of a sudden you go, oh, I get it, right? You catch up and the light bulb goes on and the person next to you leans over and goes, what, what did you get? And then you have that moment where you have to go, crap, how am I going to communicate the idea that I just got in this flash of, of insight? Well, that, that impetus to, to, articulate, to formulate, and to express what you've understood. That's the process of conceptualization. And the thing about children is that because they haven't lived that long um, and, they're, and they're still sort of working on their command of the language and their primary language, they don't uh, have a sort of deep reservoir of um, images and symbols and linguistic tools to formulate and express their understandings as adults do. Uh, which is part of why I asked earlier about metaphors and myth mm-hmm. and the language of children, yeah. right? Um, is that it seems to me the, the place where the difference is strongest is at this point of um, not of their capacity to understand, but of their capacity to articulate both to adults, but also to themselves, the content of what they've understood. Totally. And, and, and also like in a medical type, in, in this situation I'm thinking of makes them really vulnerable to whatever metaphors are given to them which is why i ended up doing a panel with some colleagues a while ago about battle imagery in um in in children's healthcare. well like what are we saying when we encourage children to think of their illness as an alien invasion especially when their illness is 
chronic or it's, it's a disability that they're not, you know, um, that you don't cure, right, um, in the same way, but rather it's kind of a lifelong condition. And, and so children are really, or um, a fascinating study about kind of done how kids conceptualize their asthma. And one little girl who thought of her asthma as like basically kind of like sin, you know, and, and clearly her parents had told this, like mm. told her this, you know, like when she does bad things, her asthma acts up. Ooh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it was like, it was like a, you know, a demon that came over her. And when she was angelic, then um, it, then, the, then kind of the evil power didn't have control over her. Wow. So children are really um, susceptible to the metaphors that we give them for understanding their illness. And so then when you think again about their participation in decision-making, well, this little girl's decisions now are in some ways pre, presupposed or constrained or, or something constrained by this like metaphor in the same way that you find children very constrained in all sorts of settings by their parents unwillingness to say, talk about death and, there's a German physician who's written a good book on it who basically says they had a lot of patients who, especially kind of like in kind of the 11 to 15 year range, who towards the end of their life would just stop talking entirely. So they were completely silenced by the fact that the people around them were unwilling to engage them in discussion about the things that were happening to them. And so that's what one of the big reasons, like I kind of, or one of the big drives of my whole project is I want to find ways. How do you find a foundation for including children so that they have a little bit more power over, so that you're aware of the power of metaphor on them so that, um, that you don't have children who basically die silent and alone because, yeah. um, so, and, and, and a lot of the shared decision-making, um, platforms or models that are out there are really just based again still on this like adult individual kind of rational approach and then you just measure like how much reason the child has I don't know how you measure how much reason someone has that's a whole other question and then like that determines whether or not they've crossed the threshold into participation or not and what I want to find here and what is a foundation to say no no this is how all of us think and there are different things that we bring to the table and that the way we come to judgments most properly happens together because that's how we come to all knowledge as human beings. But especially in this setting, well, there are questions that children are going to raise that you're not going to think of, but there's a level that you're going to conceptualize and answer those questions that children aren't capable of. So it can, and I mean, there's a lot more things that can be said about conflict situations. There are parents who just make terrible decisions for their children, you know, like that sort of stuff. I'm not interested in those conflict ones yet. What I really want to look at is, well, and what I think is here is, well, here's a model for saying, well, meaning is actually shared in this way. And you can have a participation based on these structures and these way we come to the ways we come to think um, that isn't just predicated on like a measurement of rational capacity, but rather um, a much more participatory model of how humans come to meaning in the first place. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, your research with us. Um, let's, we've gone a little hair long, but um, we can do treasures old and new, and then we'll, we'll pack it up. Sound, sounds great. Um, 
So my treasure new, uh, I don't really have a treasure. Well, I did just think of a treasure old, but it's like really dark. Um, <laughs> well, let's do the treasure new and then maybe we can get. So we'll do a treasure new, which is less dark. It's, um, it's a book by Thomas LeCur. And I just picked it up at AAR last weekend. And it's called The Work of the Dead, A Cultural History of Mortal Remains. This is our less dark option. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, just checking. It, yeah. This is an occupational hazard I'm running into. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, as it sounds, it's like this grandiose history. It's like 700 pages of basically like, what do we do with our dead? And how do the like... Basically, it's called the work of the dead. How does how do those communities of the dead, wherever we put them, affect the life of the living? Um, how do they create cultural meaning? How do they differentiate our spaces? How does it influence how we think about ourselves and all that sort of stuff? So um, I'd highly recommend it. It's a great bedtime reading. <laughs> well, what we were going to do before... Uh before Robin thought of an even darker book for her treasure old is we were going to open it up to, uh, if you want to tweet at us uh, at systematic pod or shoot us an email systematically podcast at gmail.com with an idea for a complimentary treasure old to uh, Robin's solid AAR fine. Yeah. Tw- uh, tweet us your favorite deathy books that are old. Yeah. Let's find some old deathy books. We talked about, uh, Cicero's what's the title of that Cicero uh, on life and death on life and death yeah. which I was saying I read as an undergrad which means I didn't really read it so I should probably read it again um but okay Robin what but what did you think of in the interim in the interim I thought of um Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure Not which familiar. is a book um I mean it's a novel but it's really fascinating because what you get in the 19th century is you get this cult of death right um but you also get the cult of childhood and, um, and, and people really brought them together. And there's this incredible sentimentalizing of, of the childhood deathbed scene. And it appears everywhere. It's in children's literature. It's in pop, like everywhere in the popular imagination, this like beautiful, pious, wonderful deathbed scenes. And, um, people partly because of kind of the Protestant reformation and everything and the ongoing theological disputes about the fate of dead children, especially infants, especially unbaptized infants, people felt, but kids were still dying all the time, right? It's the 19th century. So people became really invested in not the afterlife, but basically the moment of death. And you had this like massive sentimentalizing of the child deathbed scene. And Thomas Hardy's like, I ain't got time for any of that shit. And um, (laughs) instead, he writes a novel about three children with just like the most brutal death scene um that's like a complete parody and reversal and just like horrific rejection of the sentimentalized uh child death scene i won't ruin it for you by telling you what happens but it's just yeah it's intense um so i did think of that but then i thought it's a novel first not a work you know kind of of history or theology and also it's like it would like really ruin your sunday so um yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, I think that one will stay on the shelf for me. Thanks. Um, yeah. But I guess you know this is, a, a, like you said, a kind of vocational hazard for working on these things. These books just find their way to you, I assume. Oh, they do. They just yeah. like it's like you read an article about it, it um, an article like footnotes it, and then you're like, well, I just have to read this well, now, now. I have to know. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Uh, 
Robin, thank you so much. Um, hopefully next week we'll be back with the whole gang, maybe Brian and Ryan and everybody. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what time holds for us all. We'll see so what, like, uh, what uh, flu viruses come everyone's yeah, way. No kidding, man. Um, all right. Yeah, go get your flu shots, everybody. Mm-hmm. Help, with, help with that herd immunity. All right. Well, I, like I said before, you can find us on Twitter at SystematicPod. You can send us an email at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud if you're not doing one or the other already. If you go to Apple Podcasts, do us a favor. Can you leave us a rating and a review? Um, those help people find the show so that other people can hear about novels about child death. Um, our music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, and your Creative Commons license. And uh, as always, be responsible. Bye.